0: I was studying this passage we're going to be in this morning. It's not a very long one, two little scenes. Uh, this, these two, this verse from 1 Samuel was in my mind from the very beginning of reading these two scenes. And it's a line that God speaks to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel 16, right as God has, de- has decided uh, Saul's time is is uh, limited. Uh, Saul is about to be out. I'm going to anoint a new king. And God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons as the next king who will replace the failure king, Saul. And Samuel arrives, and his eyes are set on the oldest firstborn son, Eliab, and he assumes, obviously, this must be the next king. And God says, for second, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks at outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. It's funny, you'd think Samuel would have already understood this by this point because of how, what a miserable failure King Saul had been. I mean, here was this guy who in every way to outward appearance, appearances looked, the quintessential king, that Israel could be proud of and who would lead them victoriously. And he was an utter failure. He didn't honor the Lord God in his heart at all. His life, uh, his actions and his choices again and again exposed his, his selfishness and his pride that he was a fraud. And then on the other hand, as Samuel anoints David, this young still shepherd boy as the next king, to outward appearances, he didn't look impressive at all uh, yet but the Lord looks on the heart and in this young shepherd boy if you know the story in first Samuel beat this heart that was jealous for the glory of God that heard God's name being profaned by their enemies and taunted and he wanted to do something about it God could see that in his heart and he was delighted in it the Lord doesn't see like we see we tend to look at outward appearances but the Lord sees the heart And I think in these two scenes here at the end of Luke 20 and beginning of Luke 21, uh, Luke intentionally juxtaposes these two little scenes. In other words, he places them side by side because by doing so, it highlights the contrast of each one. And they each from a different angle demonstrate this truth that the Lord sees the heart and the heart is what matters. In the first scene, we're going to see what Jesus is absolutely not impressed by at all. And in the next scene, we see a glimpse of what does impress Jesus. What grabs his attention and makes him say, did you see that? Let's remember where we left off last week because where we pick up um, reading right now is literally right after what just happened. So what has just happened is that uh, the... Scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and other religious leaders, they've had it with Jesus. They want to get him eliminated and they've been trying to set these traps in public to trick Jesus into saying something on the record that then can be brought to Rome and Rome will do something to get get rid of him because Jesus' authority and the following that is growing around him is jeopardizing the authority and the power and the status that they have been enjoying. And they don't like that. And he is just, where we left off last week, had one final dust-up with the scribes where he turned their question right back around on them and left them speechless. And here's where we pick up and read. Chapter 20, verse 45. That had just happened. And in the hearing of all the people, scribes included, he said to his disciples, so, he doesn't, so this isn't a warning to the scribes who he just put in their place, He's turned from them and he's speaking to his disciples in their hearing. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's word for us here this morning. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord sees the heart. So scene number one, what is the Lord who sees the heart not impressed by? Phony faith. He's not impressed by faith that is faith in outward appearance only. And so in the presence of these scribes who have just been rendered speechless, he says to his disciples, beware of them. And he doesn't mean look out for them so they don't get you. It's they're trying to get me and, and they're going to try to get you. He doesn't, although that's soon going to be true as well for all those who follow Jesus is they're going to receive the same sort of hostility Jesus did. But here what he means by beware is beware of being like them. Don't follow them. Beware of following in their footsteps. Don't be like these scribes. So who were these scribes? Let's remember, because again, in Luke's gospel, we get Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and, and scribes and all these different religious leaders. And So remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two distinct sects within the religious leadership that had differing theologies and, and, and contrast or, uh, contradictory points of view on certain points of doctrine. Uh, the scribes weren't another sect. The scribes were a profession. Scribes' profession was copying and transcribing and preserving the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses, by hand. And they worked hard. They started young. These men who wanted a scribe to be scribes, and they studied and studied, and they knew God's law, every word of it, backwards and forwards, inside and out. They were considered experts in the law. They were the elite academics when it came to the scriptures as they had it at that time. And as such, they would be looked to for their way, uh, their opinion on matters of the law, to make judgments and to be the teachers of the law. They were the experts. That's why sometimes in the Gospels, the scribes sometimes, Jesus calls them lawyers or teachers of the law, because as experts in the law, that is some of the ways that they function. They were highly respected and revered for their knowledge of God's word. So why would Jesus not want his disciples to follow experts in the law, right? Well, it's because of what he exposes about them. They were fake. They were hypocrites. Now, as a side note, I'm sure there were some scribes who weren't. He's not blanketing that every single scribe, they were all rotten to the core. He has these scribes in mind, right? He's in the presence of these scribes who came and they're trying to trap him uh, to hang himself with his own words. And it's scribes like these that he's calling out and saying, beware of. They want him out of the picture because his claims of authority jeopardizes what they lived for, as we're going to see, who they lived for, which was themselves. And the Lord who looks on the heart exposes the heart of these scribes for all to see. Look at what Jesus says. He points out some of the things that they love, and he points out A couple examples of the sorts of things that they did, ways that they lived. First of all, he speaks to their heart. You know what they really love, he says? They love attention. They love admiration. They love when their egos are stroked. They dress to impress, and they walk through these public places, and they live for those moments when work stops in the marketplace, and heads turn, and people sort of defer and bow to them and acknowledge their greatness in public places. They love this, Jesus says. That's what they live for. Scribes like these loved to look like they loved God. But they didn't love God. They loved themselves. And what's particularly wicked here, Jesus is saying, is these, quote, experts of the law were taking God's law and using it in a mercenary sort of way, an opportunistic way, as a means to glorify themselves and exalt themselves among God's people. And remember, God gave his law to create a people for his own possession who, as they walk in faithfulness to this law, live lives to the surrounding word, say in their actions, hallowed be thy name. But in their lives, they've taken the law of God and they use it as a means to get people to say, hallowed be your name. And look at what they did. Meanwhile, says they devoured widows' houses, these experts in the law, how did they? Of course they must have known, as experts in the law, how frequently God's law had really strong words to say about how widows and other vulnerable were treated, fatherless and sojourners. Just one example. Exodus 22, 22 through 24, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. Experts in the law would have known Exodus 22, 22 through 24. They could have quoted it to you. And then as the prophets came, generation after generation, God's people would wander from the covenant and wander from his law, starting with the religious leaders and the, the terrible kings, and God kept sending prophets. One of the most common indictments of each generation of wandering Israel was about this very thing. Here's an example, Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, writers who keep writing oppression, To turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. And Jesus is saying in, in the scribes' hearing to his disciples, that's them. They prey upon poor widows. He doesn't explain exactly how the scribes pulled this off, but the point is they used their knowledge of the law and the status that that gave them, and they enriched themselves by impoverishing already poor and vulnerable widows. And look at the second thing Jesus says they did. Meanwhile, on the outside, for a pretense, they made long prayers. They postured themselves as devout and is having an open line with God that was special, but God calls it theater, right in front of him, <laughs> to his disciples. He says, "That's fake. These experts in the law don't—they their lives show they don't know God's law at all, and they certainly don't know the God who gave this law and His heart and what it beats for. If they had, it would have borne fruit." Remember in in Psalm 19 talks about the law of the Lord and some of the fruit that the law of the Lord should cause to grow. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is able to revive the soul and make wise the simple. It's able to rejoice the heart and enlighten the eyes and it's sweeter than honey and more desirable than gold because when fully kept, faithfully kept, it would lead to great reward. And Jesus is saying, these scribes have never tasted God's law like that. And it shows. And he says at the end of verse 47, something chilling. He says, their future, if this is where, how they persist and they don't wake up, they will receive the greater condemnation. That phrase is sobering, greater condemnation. In other words, degrees of condemnation. We've seen this already in the Gospel of Luke on the other side, haven't we? Jesus has told parables about the day that he returns like the master in some of those parables and he comes to reward the faithful like with the parable of the minas, and the one says, Master, your mina produced tenfold, and he's rewarded tenfold. And then the, this other faithful steward is, is, says your mina's produced fivefold, and, and he's rewarded fivefold. And we see this picture of, of measures of, of reward in Christ's coming kingdom. And here Jesus says it works the other way too. He says the sin of these scribes is such, he says they will receive greater condemnation. They will be held accountable at a more significant level. Why? Well, at least two reasons that Jesus has already talked about in the gospel early in chapter 11. But first, it was that their, their phoniness, which had led them to reject the, the anointed one who was standing right in front of them, was despite having the most exposure to God's word that should have made them the first to recognize the Messiah when he was standing in front of them. That's what Jesus keeps saying, Right? You can read the weather, but you can't read this law that you're experts in. And I'm standing right in front of you. And so some of the greater condemnation, I think, is because they're, they're, they have so much light, so much evidence, so much revelation of God, and yet they're blind and hard of heart. But secondly, they were guilty of not just leading themselves down the path of destruction, but leading others with them and taking others down. They were trying to turn people away from God's anointed who had come to save them. That's what Jesus said back in chapter 11. Scott preached the passage on these woes to the Pharisees and woes to the scribes. And, and Jesus says, Here's why <laughs> this, this condemnation is coming. You've taken away the key of knowledge, you've taken the law you're experts in, and rather than using it to help point God's people to, the Messiah when he comes. You've taken it away. You didn't enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. It's double guilt. So here's a question for us. When we're disciples. We claim to be disciples. Um, how do we beware the scribes? How do we beware, take care that we don't follow in their, in their path? Here's two questions I think we can ask. The first is about as f- <laughs> Uh, foundational as it gets, to ask ourselves, am I a scribe? Am I a follower of Jesus in outward appearance only? Is it merely a veneer? Is it merely an external projection, but it doesn't reflect a true reality of my heart? Because the Bible makes it clear when real repentance over sin and real faith in Christ, that's evident that the Holy Spirit is there. That someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins, God made alive together with Christ and has reanimated them and introduced the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a person's heart, it bears fruit and shows evidence. So here's some questions. Do you see evidence of the Spirit dwelling in your heart? Not just are you ticking off some of the boxes of God's commands, but do you see evidence that you were dead, and, and there's something new that dwells in you, God's spirit? Here's some ways you can think about. Do you feel sorrow over your sin and not just a relief at the, the, the promise that you'll escape the consequences of sin? Is forgiveness enough for you, or is this promise that now the Holy Spirit will set me free from sin, a desire to get rid of sin, like wanting a shower when you're filthy and dirty, or wanting to be healed when you're sick? Is that how you feel about your sin? You don't just want to avoid the hammer dropping on you, you want it out of your life. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And is there an awareness of your utter dependence on the grace of God outside of you to even make that possible in the first place? A sense that I, I can't do that for myself that causes you, then draws you to Christ to look to Him in faith to say, would you do for me what I can't do for myself? That's evidence you're not a scribe. That's evidence that, 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 that your faith is not phony. Do you love Christ are you grateful for his love and grace and his discipline? Do you desire that God be glorified in your mor- life more than you be glorified in your life? Do you see evidence that, that that shift is happening where you're slowly moving off the throne of your life and establishing God in his rightful place on the throne of your life? Or, now what, with all of those things I just said, not perfectly of course as fred said last week that's also not how any of this works that's not how we 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 continue to grow in christ it's not all at once obviously but do you see evidence or do you have the appearance of godliness but deny its power paul describes some christians to timothy in second timothy 3 like that they have the appearance of godliness but they deny its power it's just an appearance Or do you profess to know God, but you deny him by your works? Paul told Titus, there are some so-called believers who profess to know God, but their works give their hearts away. And if so this morning, if you think, I think so, that's bad news, but then I have great news for you. That's the great news, good good news of great joy for all people that this whole gospel has been about. That's why Christ came. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he surrendered himself and shed his blood so that the condemnation that your sin, even that greater condemnation, has fallen on him at the cross, and you can escape it and be forgiven and begin now to be made new from the inside out. That could happen today. I would love to talk with you about this at the close of our service. So would any of our prayer team who will be at the front. Please don't leave without doing that. But before we move from this question, am I a scribe, Um, I want to take a little sidebar and talk about two possible dangers of asking ourselves that question, of asking, am I a scribe? Danger number one, on one hand, there are some who should answer, yes, I am. And the danger is, you are probably more likely to persuade and convince yourself that you're not. The heart is wicked above all things. Who can understand it? We're so easily self-deceived, and we need the Holy Spirit to to reveal to us, no, yes, I am. Because admitting it is where it it begins, your chance to be redeemed and restored. You have to acknowledge your need, first of all. But there's another danger on the other side that there's some of us here, and I want to to care for. On the other hand, I know that there are some of you here that you ask yourself, am I a scribe? Maybe on a weekly basis. And you should answer no. You should answer no and rest assured that you belong to Christ. But because this process of sanctification can feel so slow, the way that God from one degree of glory to another roots out sin, helps us put to death what's earthly in us, and begins to renew the image of our creator in us little by little, the way it feels, I think, for, from our perspective often can make us ask ourselves that question again and again and worry. Maybe I am. Maybe, maybe I am. I was thinking of Galatians 5. Paul describes the reality of the Christian life after conversion, after being made alive with Christ and beginning now with his spirit to grow in Christ. It's like a civil war is going on in our heart. Two different desires desires of the flesh that's what we were born with and they didn't all disappear when you first trust Christ but now new desires of the spirit that also dwell and Paul says they're opposed to one another to keep us from doing the things we want to do and because of that in the Christian life there will always be a gap between who we ought to be and who we are right until Jesus returns and finishes that process that we just sang about that, confirms us in righteousness. There will be a day for all God's children where we are fully devoted to him and sin is eradicated from every corner of our hearts and we will only want to live for him. But we're not there yet. So until then, we've got the gap, right? And that gap can discourage us some days and make us feel like our faith is fake. Have you ever worried that your faith is fake? First of all, if that thought even enters your mind and it concerns you and you're not okay with that, that's exhibit A that you're probably not fake. <laughs> True frauds don't feel that way. To, ha- to, to con- be concerned, is that how I stand before God? That's a good sign. But I want to share an illustration with you. I didn't come up with this so over 20 years ago, er, my early days at Grace Here, Eric, as he was teaching his character of God class, asked me to help him put together a visual to illustrate something that he teaches every semester and, and shares with a lot of students who come to him and voice this same fear and worry and struggle with assurance of faith. And I, don't, I don't want to walk us through it here real briefly, but this, I think, can visualize from our perspective how the Christian life can feel over time in ways that discourage us and, and cause us to fear and, and wonder, am I really a scribe? So this is from our perspective, and we start with God. That's a theta. That's a great Greek letter for theos, right? We're not gonna, I wasn't going to put a picture of an g- old guy in a beard because that's also not how any of that works. So there's God, and he's high and holy and exalted, creator, king, ruler of everything. Everything belongs to him, and he's perfect in majesty and glory, and he's up there right? And we're down here from birth. Ephesians 2 says we are born sinners. We are born by nature children of wrath. Our desires we are hardwired to buy what Satan's selling and follow the course of this world. So there's this fish shaking guy. That's all of us right down there from birth. And because of that, the Bible teaches us there's separation. There's a gap. We have made ourselves God's enemies. We have made ourselves hostile toward God and we are cut off from peace with him, relationship with him as our father. And apart from his outside help, we are all under God as judge to come. So here's the good news of the gospel. The great news is that Jesus came and he went to the cross to cancel the record of our debt that stood against us for being fist shakers toward God. To make peace with God to die the death and suffer the wrath from God that our sin deserves so that you don't have to face it. You can escape it and instead receive the free gift of God saying, I want to make you mine. I want to forgive all of the guilt of your sin. I want to give my spirit within you and I want to start over and we're going to make you new. And conversion is there because that's this moment where God first begins to make you alive together with Christ. And from that moment on, all of what jesus did on your behalf fills the gap bridges it jesus paid it all all to him you will so now here's the christian life and two things happen i think we've experienced this over the course of following jesus and getting to know god more through his word and growing in our knowledge of him and growing in our knowledge of ourselves we call this process sanctification god making us more and more holy from the inside out And one thing happens is we grow to know God more and the more we come to know God and he answers prayers like Paul when Paul prayed that that God would uh, help us comprehend with all the saints, what the height and breadth and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. That's also true of the holiness of God and the perfections of God. And the longer you walk with God, the more you understand, oh, I thought he was holy, but he's holy, right? It just keeps going bigger. And simultaneously, though, the more we read the word and we ask God to use it, the more aware we are of how deep sin runs, right? We sing that song, where sin runs deep, God's grace is more. The day you were converted, this is how deep you thought sin was. This is how holy, this is how deep you thought sin was. But the longer we walk with the Lord, this is how holy God is, and this is how deep sin goes. That's why I think from our perspective sometimes we can feel like I think this process is going in reverse, God. I feel worse than I did when I started. A lot worse. But here's, this is why the gospel is such good news. Because as these, these things happen, rather than despair, the deal is the cross expands. That's why Every week, what do we do when we gather? We rehearse the gospel. We remind ourselves of the gospel. Again and again, we remind ourselves that Jesus paid it all. Because the redeeming work of Jesus was always as big as, as, as it extends way out there. We just didn't realize it. So we can, rest, we can take it easy and say, you know what, God, show me how holy you are. As I, want to, I want to know it in its full. I don't, want to, I don't want to say, okay, you can only be that holy, God, because then I'm worried, right? And show me how deep sin goes. And I don't have to be worried, God, because all along, from the very beginning, Jesus' redeeming work was big enough to cover it all. We're just growing in our understanding of how big that is, right? So there's a, a verse from the hymn before the throne of God above that I'm so thankful for whoever wrote that song, I'm blanking on their name right now, but gave us this, uh, this verse to sing as a way of reminding ourselves of this picture right here. We say, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied. To look on him, pardon me. That's good news whether right this morning you realize you're a scribe or you realize, no, God saved me from my scribliness years ago. You can turn to him this morning and that can all change or you can keep repenting your way forward like the rest of us. And that's the second question we need to ask. We need to keep bewaring of the scribes, being aware of scribliness in us because we're to keep putting it to death, right? Paul says in Colossians, put to death, keep putting to death what is earthly in you, assuming there's lots of earthly that's still in there. And some of that earthliness is scribeliness. It's these lingering desires to be impressive and to focus on the outward appearance and and how people perceive you from the outside and neglect the true work of the heart transforming, we still have tendencies to be more concerned with looking like we love God than actually loving God, right? But it's the same good news that called us into Christ that keeps us moving forward toward Christ. Another song, I I quote songs a lot, I, I think in songs. Another song we sing at Grace a lot, that we pray, lead us beyond mere formal duty. Show us your captivating beauty till we in awe and reverence humbly bow Beholding the glory of Jesus has this fruit that it bears of humbling us and and leading us to repentance and leading us to trust in him in greater measure. We behold the Jesus who didn't come wearing long robes. Jesus didn't come for the greetings in the marketplaces and the best synagogue seats and the best uh, seats at honorable feasts. He came to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He got treated pretty poorly in some of the synagogues he visited, didn't he? (laughs) Marketplaces, he's getting attacked. People are trying to murder him. We look to this Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Even for the scribes who would shout, crucify him. All right, so that's what the Lord's not impressed by. Phony faith. So, what grabs his attention? You see in this second scene, the real deal. Now, I I'm, I'm pause for a minute uh, just to orient you where we are here in this sermon. Here's a little visual. <laughs> <laughs> to a fault, doesn't matter how short of a passage of scripture I preach on, point number one will undoubtedly get most of the attention to the sad <laughs> neglect of point two. And it hit me on Friday how particularly ironic it is that point number two here, this is the woman who everyone overlooks who Jesus is saying she deserves all our attention. <laughs> anyway, so I hope it doesn't mean that this point is a sorry point, but it just it, it, less time, we're going to spend less time on it, but this poor widow might get uh, fewer words here in the sermon, but she's going to get the last word, so let's look at this woman, because she's the real deal, that no one, everyone's overlooking in this scene as he's saying beware of the Scribes. he looks at the people in the court bringing their their gifts to the temple treasury and giving them publicly, and he's watching these wealthy donors deposit their large gifts, and we shouldn't read anything negative, I don't think, in here. He doesn't disparage these rich donors here, right? He doesn't, the contrast isn't that they're fakes. He just says there's a lot of wealthy people giving wealthy donations, but he wants to highlight, because he spots this poor little widow woman coming up and tossing in two of the tiniest, least valuable coins in the empire. And I don't think it's probably because Jesus had, has divine knowledge that he knows she's a poor widow and knows how much she gave. I think everyone there probably knew a poor widow when they saw one. And if it were like these receptacles... Now, this is just a, a, a photo here, trying to trying to picture this scene. If it was like these receptacles in the temple courts where people would go and drop in their coins and their gifts... It probably would have been fairly obvious the sounds of the rich donations going in and the two little plinks of this poor woman's tiny copper coins, right? For all we know, this widow is so poor because of some of the scribes that Jesus has just talked about. And what's amazing, if she is... Is she jaded toward God, clutching onto this little earthy wealth she still has that, she, that hasn't been devoured by scribes? No, here she is at the temple with an open hand. And it's crazy. A couple of commentators pointed out she could have just tossed in one. She tosses in two. And Jesus points out, maybe this is divine knowledge, she gave all she had. That was it. She, she emptied her pocket and just like that. Now, if you were looking for a photo to put in the dictionary next to the word unimpressive, that might be a good candidate. I mean, that's pretty unimpressive in terms of outward appearance and how the world sees things, but not to Jesus. He points it out. He says, look at that woman, and listen to what he says about her. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, not even just more than one of those rich gifts, more than all. She just outgave them all. She just dunked on all their giving and she didn't even realize it. Why, he says, because they all had co- contributed out of their abundance. When they left, they still had a cushion. But she apparently gave all she had to live on. So this tiny gift that, to be honest, added zero wealth to the temple treasury that day, right? No one counting up that treasury was like, ooh, we got these two little copper coins. Now, you know. But Jesus says, no, it was a shining beam of evidence of active trust and devotion to God. This precious daughter of Abraham who entrusted her vulnerable life to the God of heavens, Yahweh, who who knew her needs because he knows the needs of sparrows, right? And he's a good father. Here she is entrusting herself to him and it's seen in this beautiful example of tiny generosity. It didn't go unnoticed by him. One last side note here as we finish. Jesus is not saying, if you really trust God, you will give to the point of destitution. Otherwise, we're all guilty in here, right? Is any of you destitute this morning because you just have given so much? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is, has written, and he's inviting them to be part of this collection for Christians, uh, the saints in Jerusalem who are enduring a famine. But as he invites them to give, he says very clearly it's acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So, so it's not, Jesus isn't just saying everyone needs to impoverish yourself in your giving, right? And yet, he also has to point out to the Corinthians, these Christians over in Macedonia, who in a severe test of their own affliction, out of abundance of joy and in their extreme poverty, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity, and they gave according to their means and beyond their means, begging us for the favor of taking part in this relief for the saints, not as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Just like this widow, this joyful sacrificial giving was evidence that God was at work in their hearts and they were joyfully willing to, to feel the pinch to meet the needs of other Christians in another place who they never met but they were Christians because those Christians had originally sent missionaries who had gotten to them and they wanted to be part, partners with them. And they joyfully gave themselves because first they had given themselves to the Lord and entrusted themselves. So here's the closing, it's just application question then for this, this widow. Jesus wants us to leave here today thinking about that widow and thinking, I want to be more like her. Here's two ways I think the widow's example and what Jesus points out about her should encourage us. Number one, it should make us want to be more like her and less like these scribes. And to ask ourselves, am I entrusting myself and my life and and, and what God's given me to steward to him? Can I be generous even when I'm not so sure where it's all going to come from? even if if money is tight, can I still be generous? Can I still be hospitable? It might look different in measure, but can I unclench my hands and be generous according to what I've been given and use what God has given me to participate in his name being hallowed on the earth? That's what this poor widow was doing in giving toward the temple is in a small way wanting to contribute to this place that was drawing attention to the hallowed holy name of God and we are called to do that as well second way it should encourage you is when you feel discouraged that all you have to offer God feels like that maybe you have a generous heart but you look at what you have financially or the gifts that God has given you or not given you and you look it around at others and it just feels so meager and so inconsequential how is this really going to contribute to what you're doing in the world God Jesus says, "Ah, that's how man sees. The Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the quality of what you give, the heart out of which it springs, not the quantity. And let's face it, even the richest donation, God doesn't need that. He can work despite that. He's delighted in your tiny, simple, but sincere, faithful giving. It delights him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for stepping down uh, from glory into poverty so that you might give your all for our sake. You gave it all, your life and breath, to the point of death on a cross, and you were buried to do away with our sin, to set us free from being guilty to being forgiven children so we thank you for that lord this morning help us this week i think of paul saying uh, be strengthened by the grace that is in christ jesus lord with this image again this morning of the gospel and the bigness of it to span the biggest gap uh, strengthen us and steal us this week to follow you with confident faith generous hearts in jesus name amen